Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Grateful to have you here for another episode with another young entrepreneur by the name of Maddie Schaefer. Um, quick bio on Maddie: he actually just graduated from UNC as a Robertson Scholar and Adams Apprentice. And his first success was building a YouTube channel where he reviewed tech products like phones, laptops, and mechanical keyboards. He grew that channel over five years to 500,000 subscribers, 70 million video views, and six figures in revenue. Since then, Maddie has co-founded a company called Vade, which is out to make parking more convenient by providing real-time parking availability data accessible to every city and driver. Really sharp guy. Um, really appreciate him joining on this episode. I think you guys are going to get a tremendous amount of value out of it. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Maddie Schaefer. Let's get it started. Maddie, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you on. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to chat with you further. I know we caught up a little bit the other week, but um, definitely want to dive deeper. And I, I think you have so many interesting experiences in your uh, young life. I think it's going to help a lot of other folks that are kind of looking to get on their own path and kind of their own, um, you know, kind of figure it out. I think you can, you know, shed a lot of light on stuff. Um, I can go a lot of different ways to start. I, I have to address the the big question I have about, can we talk about YouTube? Can we start about that? Is that all right? Let's do it. Yeah. Get that out of the way. <laughs> Because you were like a YouTube, could you call yourself like a star? I mean, an influencer? I mean, I guess you can say that, right? You had like I would a say pretty at the time, problem. yeah, at the time, especially relative to the sizes when I was doing it, um, it was definitely more prominent, like kind of like just the inflation of numbers in general. At the time, the 500,000 subscribers I had would probably be in line with like the the magnitude of somebody with a million or 1.5 now just because audiences are always getting bigger what was the time frame you did that like years um i think i started in 2013 2012 or 2013 uh freshman or sophomore year of high school and i continued it until sophomore year of college just around so about four or five years total i probably five years total what was what was the reason you I mean, my, my son talks about being he wants to be a YouTube like he wants to have a YouTube channel with his friends. And I'm like, dude, pump the brakes like, yeah, okay, you can maybe do it. But you know, all the, you know, the backdoor stuff, like the, the, the problems that may come into it. So I try to explain it to him. But you know, he's almost eight. He doesn't get it as much. But like, why? Why did you want to start the channel? And why did you decide to do it? Because I think you did it around like tech and stuff. Give me a little genesis of that at that age, because that seems you know young to like figure out. Hey, I'm going to do this and invest time and energy and all that. Or yeah, it was a um, you know it was a long time coming type of thing. I was I watched a lot of YouTube growing up um, and a lot of uh, like video game commentaries, and and I was aware pretty early on that there were people making careers out of it, but that ne wasn't necessarily, I think when I really started, it was more in pursuit of an audience and I wanted to be in that position and that status. It wasn't necessarily um, the money or anything. Uh, I actually did have a YouTube channel before the tech one uh, when I was even younger. This is when I was like 10 or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was doing card tricks. I, I did magic card tricks. Um, that channel still lives on YouTube. It's called Airshot 11. You can have some fun with that later. Oh um, man, We're, I'm going to link it up in the show notes. <laughs> it is. It's funny. I love the fact that they're still up there. I'll never delete them. Um, my face isn't really in it. 
at all and maybe one or two but it's just my voice and like just going back to those moments like that's uh those were the good times but I stopped that and then I picked up tech when I really got into just building PCs in general um and I was I was a frequent visitor of the subreddit build a PC and I got really obsessed with that whole uh kind of community and that whole like industry I guess of of especially gaming computers specifically and um I found myself eventually one day uh, rather than asking questions on the subreddit, I, I was answering them. And a lot of the questions were the same, like, I have 800 bucks, what's the best gaming PC I could build? Um, and my thought was, if I'm essentially just giving the same answer to a bunch of people asking the same question, it'd be a lot more efficient if I put it in a video form. And, and granted, in hindsight, I had no business, you know, telling people what they should spend their money on at that point. Um, but I, I rolled with it. I, I put a, the first video was just a, uh, a breakdown of parts based on a certain budget, um, not with my face or anything, just like made in PowerPoint and stuff. Um, and then from there, I just kind of kept with it. I just didn't stop really. Well, that's where I want to prime to just a little bit because, and this is maybe hopefully helps some other people, especially with younger kids or whatever. Did you, did your parents know you were doing this? Yes, I used their camera at the beginning. That was that was nice that I had a like nowadays you could just use a phone and it's plenty high quality. But at that time, phones weren't really there. Um, and it was like, you know, I, I would they bought me a, a flexible tripod so I could attach my camera to a light like lamp I had as a tripod. Um, and that so they were aware um, pretty early on and, and certainly encouraged it. Um, and then especially they, the, especially my dad was incredibly helpful when it started picking up and becoming more serious and I had to take it more seriously. Um, you know, I had no education in how to do accounting or budgeting or anything. So he helped me a lot on that end, but you know, they, they were aware and they definitely, I think the first Christmas after I, I want to say I reached a thousand or 10,000 subscribers, um, they, for Christmas, they got me a, an actual DSLR that I was going to be like spending my own money on. And that was that was really nice because it let me really up the quality and um, you know feel comfortable going into my room and recording videos. It was that uh, is is that channel still up? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's Matt Schaefer. It was MS Tech for a while. Um, I switched it to my name. I think I switched it back at one point to MS Tech and then back to my name. And I've since kind of rebranded all of my profiles online as Maddie. Um, that's been a very different and interesting story of like the the Matt and Maddie situation but um for YouTube just because I'm not active on there I just left it as is well I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the Maddie thing because actually there's there's gotta be some reason you did that but why um or are you still getting like are you still monetizing that YouTube channel even though it's kind of idle because of how many yeah, and it, it doesn't, uh, the revenue didn't fall off as much as uh, I thought it would. Um, it's really all based on views. Most of my revenue was Amazon affiliate um, driven because mm-hmm. uh, all my all my videos were product based. Um, and with that program, just when they click your link, no matter what they buy, you get a percentage of it. Um, these past few months, it's dropped off more, not because of views, but because of Amazon cut all of their affiliate percentages with the current situation. Yeah. Um, but it is been surprisingly resilient and is still well not for very long but at, at the current moment still my my primary source of income well so for folks out there again and maybe it's a business they're running or something else and, and they might not you know have this massive youtube channel or anything but is there anything you could share that you learned that maybe you're taking with you you know with your current business or maybe you know you give advice out in terms of like 
what types of things did you do to help drive traffic or monetize? Was it just putting the video on or were there other components to it to actually make the video seem relevant where people want to actually dive into a few minutes of it? So the, the first step is to know what's going on in whatever space you're in and not necessarily follow every trend, but know what the trends are. Because if you're going against them and you're never posting stuff about popular stuff, like in YouTube specifically, you're just not gonna get the clicks. Um, but I think it's important once you establish that basis of knowledge to be testing different variations and different uh, you know, angles you can go that's unique and not already being done and track that. And then based on the performance, make future decisions. So. Um, it's a balance between you don't want to just do whatever you want to do and assume the viewers will come eventually, but you don't want to do what everyone else is doing. So you kind of got to find that balance of, well, this is unique to me within a, a broader space and trend that a lot of people are going to anyway. So I have organic traffic coming in, but then I'm doing something different enough where they'll stay. Hmm. Did you, I'm, I'm curious, the, any learning, and maybe it's just that, but the five years doing it from day one to like when you stop active, do it. Like what was the, was there any like massive takeaway that you had in that whole experience? All I, I probably have two major ones. The first is that it is amazing what you can achieve with just small, consistent work. Uh, like there was never a moment sure it, my, the whole growth of my channel was a cycle of viral video and then 10 normal videos and a viral video and then 10 normal videos. And that would really be driving the growth. Um, but, Aside from that, like every video has a chance of going viral, but in order to get the viral videos, you need to constantly be posting and giving yourself that opportunity. So it was never, a, there was never a big moment where it just blew up. It was very iterative over time. Um, and then, you know, I would, I would never feel like it was growing super fast, but I'd look back like a year ago and then it was, like, wow, I was way smaller back then. Like this really is an exponential curve. Um, the other takeaway would be, the ending. So when I stopped, as I mentioned, it still is driving passive income. Um, but that is because I couldn't sell it because I, I built this, this, this profitable, lucrative brand around myself. Um, but the issue is it was around myself. And I even tried to bring on independent contractors, other creators to do the videos. And I tried, uh, maybe I can just shift topics to something else. And um, the real takeaway was that I couldn't sell it because without me, it doesn't have value and I'm not going to sell it with me. Um, and in that situation, like the passive income, it's fantastic that I'm still getting it. But with any type of normal multiple of a company you'd sell, what I've gotten since stopping is nowhere near what its actual sale price would be worth. So the takeaway there is that when you're building something, if, if, if I'm not planning on staying with it for the rest of my life, I need to have the end goal in mind and make sure that should I want to sell it, I'm in a position where I can. And, and that was something I, I didn't focus on really at all in the, the formative years. Mm. That's where you probably would have had it more MS tech versus you're under Matt or Maddie. Is what yeah. And it, it really, I would have had to, another example, Linus tech tips. He, um, he's another tech YouTuber, very, very large. He, from the very start was very conscious of building something that existed without himself. He had other hosts also making videos. He had teams, um, and it required way more investment. And, and I probably wasn't up to that level or up to doing that at the time. Uh, but he kind of got it from the beginning that if you want people to like other hosts, that's a long process. You, you can't just bring them in out of nowhere. So ideally going back maybe a year or two in, I started would have thinking, or I, I would have started thinking about that, bringing people on. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't like the feeling of regret too much. So 
learning experience. Yeah. So when did you realize like a change need to happen? Because technically you could have kept going with the channel full time and just, you could be doing that now and been this, you know, YouTuber and stuff. But was that right at the end of the five years, like you made a quick decision or had you been thinking for a while, all right, what's going to be my next phase? Like, what do I really want to do? How how did, how did those internal, you know, uh, conversations happen? I was definitely thinking about it for a while. I, um, I probably stopped enjoying making the content three years in, like kind of as I was going to college. Um, and then it started adding a lot of headaches. You know, I had to get an office space. I had to figure out transportation to and from my dorm, uh, schedule, everything like that. I'm now working with editors and remotely instead of just handing them an SD card. Uh, so all those complications on top of it, I was really starting to detach myself from enjoying the content. And I would go very formulaic, make a video at the office, leave, go, go about my day, send the files elsewhere. Um, and then for two years or so, I continued making videos without really enjoying it. Um, and at that point it was, I was looking for something else, but it was, it was lucrative enough where I didn't really, without anything immediate for me to focus on, uh, it wasn't very easy to justify stopping just for the sake of stopping. Um, so I think the real trigger was once something else came along, even though it was super risky, at least there was something to focus my time on rather than just proactively stopping and waiting around. Yeah. One of the things I want to go back to, you kind of said it in passing about, I think you said you were, you were small back uh, when you were young. I think that's what I picked up on. Um, but like your confidence, because I have to imagine people get beat up all the time in terms of verbally, physically, whatever, as a kid, bully, all that stuff goes on. And now you're going and put yourself online, which you know, there's a lot of, you know, digital muscles out there. How did you handle that? Did you read all the comments? Did you, I got to imagine there were comments that were, you know, not great. Yeah, no, they definitely were. Um, Confidence online's interesting. Uh, Before I get into that, I'll, I'll preface it. Like I may have had millions of viewers, but you know, if I was doing a speech or something to a few hundred people in an audience, I'm still, you know, my heart rate's still at 120. It's, it's a very different type of uh, reach. And in the same vein, when I'm putting it out there, the, it's not like uh, we're face to face and somebody's giving me a mean comment. And that's not, I shouldn't be responding or even analyzing the situation as if that was the case. I have the platform and the voice to say whatever I want to say. And the best thing that a, a troll could do is comment. And that power dynamic, uh, including the fact that I could delete a comment if I wanted to, um, leads to a more nuanced approach to how to how to deal with it. You don't want to delete every negative comment. And in a lot of cases, it's good to respond constructively to a negative comment. Um, there are th- certainly are thresholds and words you would just ban and delete those comments and it would automatically be filtered out. Um, but it was way more about kind of controlling the the overall perspective of the viewer base that if I, if somebody made a comment that was critical, but correct, it would be, I'd be better off properly responding to it and acknowledging it uh, in front of everybody. Cause there's a lot of people that would see that comment. And those people that would see that comment are probably the most important supporters and the, and the most, you know, e- evangelical or whatever that word is. Um, so it was, it was, it's really just a constant balance of how am I going to be viewed and, and with the tools at my disposal, what's the best way to go about this? Well, and, and as, as we're talking about the YouTube stuff and, and you mentioned that kind of got me thinking a little bit more about, you know, kind of your mission, your purpose. And one, you're a young kid. You're not, you know, I say kid and Joe, you know, you're a young guy. You're not 37 like I am like you're, but you're figuring out that mission 
and, and that purpose you have in your life. And I'm assuming, would I be correct in assuming that also changed like with the YouTube? You're like, am I going to be a 35 year old you know, YouTuber? Like you wanted to do, you seem like you got a lot of intelligence, like for, even from talking before, like you want to do bigger things in the world and make a bigger impact, right? How can you talk through, you know, those again, internal discussions, but also with people around you of how you started to formulate what you really want to do in this world? Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded question. I, I definitely on the, you know, the curvy treasure map, I definitely view myself as still very early on. I think leaving YouTube was a step in the right direction, but, um, you know, I don't think it's linear or a straight line or anything like that. Um, but there, I, I think my experience, and I, I would bet that most people put in the situation would have a similar takeaway. And I, I try to kind of communicate this to other people is that being, having an audience, having a following is good until you have it. And then you realize all the bad parts about it and all the alternative paths to achieving whatever you wanted to achieve, whatever you wanted out of that audience, whether it's status or respect or anything like that. Um, but there's a lot of negatives. And the, the thing that really stuck in my mind was if in that position, especially while I was still making videos, say there was some type of scandal. Um, and in a lot of cases, without the YouTube channel, if I was involved in something, um, the, the anonymity would kind of be sustained. Like, no, like maybe UNC student or something. But with that, it would become tech YouTuber, MS Tech does this. And it's just kind of the, the limelight in general. It's a double-edged sword. And that made me realize that for those last two years, I had no interest in the fame side of it and the attention side of it. I, I like to be behind the scenes and pulling strings more. And then coincidentally, I was just interested in the business side, but growing the business side involved growing the audience. Uh, so that was kind of the internal battle going on there. Um, and most of the people I talked to called me crazy for not wanting to continue it. But then once I really talked about it with them, and if they knew me well, the more you understand, the more you realize that, okay, this is not as perfect as it seems. And there's a very low ceiling on YouTube. I would constantly look at the the top tech creators, which were three or four times my size. And, you know, I had relationships with them and just seeing them like they are growing the ceiling and, and going bigger and bigger. And now you can make million dollar companies um, within YouTube, but you can't make a billion dollar company. And, and there is a there is a cap there. And uh, that that ceiling was probably the driving factor of why I wanted to move and focus elsewhere. Was that a struggle for you in terms of you and you kind of mentioned a little bit there about the perception of what other people thought, you know, did they because I, I know this from again, people I've observed, I've probably done this myself, if I reflected long enough was like, you know, you make it sometimes you make decisions to make other people happy, and you end up not being happy for it. Uh, would did that come into the equation at all? Now you obviously had left that YouTube, you know, channel stuff, you know, full time for the most part, you said it's passive now. But did that go through your head a lot? Like, hey, maybe I should stick this because I'm kind of I'm the YouTube guy, I'm the MS tech guy. Did talk me through that kind of, uh, I guess, the self talk there to get over it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I, I definitely didn't want to be the YouTube guy. And uh, when I was in still at home before college, it was I was the YouTube guy kind of the I'm in a small town and everyone kind of knew that I was uh, and at that, you know, I was 17 years old making that money with that audience, like doing his own thing. That's awesome. It was a fantastic opportunity. I don't regret it. But 
the idea, kind of the the worst case scenario was, what if I kept doing this and then never did anything else special? And that was like the, the I don't want to just be the YouTube guy forever. But then the risk of stopping YouTube is, what if I stopped YouTube, but then didn't follow up with anything better? So I'd very much view my internal motivation as uh, leaving that to prove that I can, I don't have to be in front of the camera to succeed. That's not my, that's not my specific skill set. even if I happen to be good at it. Um, and I wanted to kind of just explore harder things to do. Not that YouTube isn't hard. Um, I think that might even be the wrong word to use there, but uh, I guess something that impacts more people or matters more uh, mm -hmm. than that. And, and so you were still doing the YouTube channel in college, right? Yeah, for the first two years. First two years. So talk me through, because obviously what you're doing now, I, I love the concept of business you have. I'll let you explain it a little bit more. But how, how long was there that tussle between, or maybe did you, were you doing both in unison? You know, I, I, talk me through when you first had that idea to start this business and then actually, you know, kind of have it form, if you will. Yeah, so we, we started working on it at the start of 2018. Um, and at that point on YouTube, I was, I was uh, past the point of just wanting to stop. I was, I was testing other creators, having them put videos on the channel instead of me and in pursuing that route. And it wasn't looking very promising. So about six months in, maybe summer of 2018 or so, uh, that's when I looked at it and realized, all right, this isn't really working on the channel using the other creators. I can either go back to it and, and revive it and, and continue, continue doing it myself, or I can let bygones be bygones and move on and focus fully on, on Babe. And uh, in the end, that is what I did. Was it an easy choice? Good question. Um, yes, yes, I... I hate regret. I think regret is a very wasteful emotion. Um, I think it's unnecessary specifically. I think if, if you go into anything and you fully realize all the potential outcomes and their likelihoods and, and you're comfortable with that spectrum, then you never have anything to regret. Even if it is the negative outcome, you were aware of that and you made that choice. Um, and I very much described that in, in stopping YouTube when I fully stopped, it was, um, I do not want to continue doing this. The money is nice, but more money than I'll make if I go get a job right now. Um, and there will always be a possibility that I don't do anything else on the same level. And I look back and wish that I kept going. But is that worth continuing something that I don't enjoy doing? And I, I'm in a very risk tolerant position. I'm in a comfortable position, um, you know, financially and, and mentally. And um, at that point, it was if I'm if I'm going to take a risk in my life, now is the time, not not when I have kids and a family like two decades from now. So um, it was kind of, it certainly was risky and it wasn't an easy decision, but once I really thought through it, uh, it was, it was clear, I would say. Okay. So I'm curious with the, um, if you can go into the ideation phase, because this is something I'm very fascinated about, fascinated about. And I've done this a bunch, you know, I've probably ideated like on four or five, probably 10 different like software ideas and different business ideas. And none of them I went forward with because I, I got down the path. I'm like, eh, you know, I don't know if I want to do this in a year. How, how did that ideation phase work with Vade? Because if I recall the first, what you're doing now wasn't the first idea, right? Then it, it's adjustable, but can you chat through that journey a little bit? Absolutely. And that, that's kind of why we, that Vade um, became a focus is 
me and my uh, one of my co-founders, Ritwick, we he also had a software development services company that he'd been running for a while. Uh, similar story where, um, while it was larger on objective terms than the YouTube channel, similar story where the the ceiling wasn't as high as he wanted, and uh, he did a lot of work with startups and always was drawn to startups and. We would get dinners once a month or so. We lived in the same dorm freshman year and and toss ideas back and forth. And none of them were good. We would explore them for a little bit. And um, none of them really stuck. But it was that end of 2017, he called me. Um, and he had just gotten out of the shower, which is a classic to him thing to do. And he goes, I was just late uh, yesterday to a meeting because I couldn't find a parking spot, even though I left early. And it stuck because it was the first time we approached something that was a problem. We didn't approach an idea or a solution and then figure out, is it going to work? It was, all right, this is a huge problem. What can we do about it? And then after that point, it was just iterative. We, we started uh, thinking there's not enough parking out there. Uh, so let's let people rent out their driveways. And there are services that do this. And most of those are software only services. And we thought, well, what if you bought a beach driveway parking spot on one of these apps and you went there and the spot was taken that would that would be terrible and uh so we we started prototyping these sensors that could detect if there was a vehicle above them or not uh we saw a few other companies using sensors for this so we thought it was a good idea they just go right on the ground um we went down that path for a while uh but we eventually realized our errors and and the first one was that in driveway rental space knowing if the spot's open or not, that's not actually that big of a pain point. There's not, it doesn't happen often enough to warrant hardware. Uh, but we also realized more importantly that supply isn't the issue with parking. There's oversupply is the issue with parking. It's the, we don't use or manage it efficiently enough. Um, but coincidentally, we got stuck on that data thing pretty early on. And that's been the constant uh, throughout all of it. Um, we shifted from driveways to cities where parking is the hardest with especially like on street parking, very little innovation has been seen there. Um, and we switched from sensors to cameras um, and eventually developed our own proprietary cameras. I actually have one right here. They look like this. They're fully wireless. That's oh, cool. our, that's our uh, advantage there is you don't need to plug them in or anything. You just toss them up on a pole um, and they use computer vision to detect and collect this data. And our whole, our whole approach is that this data has been gotten in just a few cases around the U.S. Uh, with some earlier technologies and a few pilots, and the results looked outstanding. You know, emissions were down, search times were down, sales tax collections up, turnovers up, like complete win-win-win situation with this data, but they never went from pilots to full deployments because the hardware solutions weren't quite there yet. So on the bright side, cities already knew how valuable the data was. We didn't have to convince them of that, of what it could do to their different systems. Um, so our whole mission was let's build a hardware and software solution that can make this data accessible to any city that wants it and any driver that wants it. Oh, and I haven't really explained the data. The data is just if a parking spot's open or not. It's a, think of like a green or red dot on a Google map screen. That's the core data. It goes far past just navigation. Um, in terms of like analytics and, and management and enforcement and everything. Um, but the, the base use case that's very intuitive is green or red dot is the spot open, go right there. And around kind of this whole point of it, kind of figuring out the idea of what, what direction we go, how, how much interviewing did you do to people in that space? Like how much, you know, kind of market research as you'd call it, how important was that early on to make sure you were on the right path? 
We didn't do enough. If we did enough, we never would have made the physical sensors. We would have went straight to cameras and we never would have done the driveway thing. We wouldn't would have went straight to cities or private lots. Um, but we did do it at some point. And the uh, talking to cities was the big key of going from sensors to cameras. Most of them had done pilots with sensors and didn't like them. Um, talking to uh, actually investors was was really what cued us in that the driveway rental space isn't shouldn't be our main focus if parking is our goal. Um, but now we've gotten to a point where we're much more fluid and constant with those that getting that feedback. Um, and it is totally a balance of we want to build what we envision as the right solution here. But we're working within complicated and established bureaucratic systems, we need to make sure that we're building to spec to some extent. Um, so that balance is definitely a constant that we have to deal with. When you say you didn't do enough market research, do you mean you didn't ask the right people or the right questions or just didn't do just enough? Like we only had a surface level. I would, I'm going to answer that indirectly. So we looked at driveways, started prototyping sensors, then started talking to people. Okay. So we said, all right, this is one idea we have of solving parking. Let's build it, prototype it, then test it. But we could have before asked, is this the right way to go about it before building it? Um, and it's not like we, you know, spent millions of dollars building it. It was, it was very much hands-on, like uh, uh, sweat equity. But um, it was asking the question, should you build it before you say, can we build it, is important. And, and we've certainly gotten better at that. Um, but it's a, there's always hindsight's 2020. You always want to look back and be like, ah, oh, could have just asked one thing or, you know, focused on one hypothesis. And then that would have led me in this direction so much sooner, but um, it's all part of the process and you have to fail to then succeed later. And uh, it's just iterative. Yeah. And that's what I was going to get at was, you know, sometimes you may not have come to that conclusion if you didn't go down the path you did. So sometimes, because, you know, some people look at failure as a bad thing. I, and I think it's becoming more now where it's recognized that most people do fail several times on a bigger level, but also on very micro levels as well through that, you know, initial process. Um, so you may not have come to that realization if you didn't go through these steps. And you probably learned some along the way as well, you know, oh, right? yeah. that's going to help you guys going forward. Um, I wanted to ask quickly, if I can, about your co-founder and just in general, having a partner in the business. Now, is just one co-founder or do you have multiple? Remind me. I have two. Two. How did that process work of A, not doing something by yourself, right? You did the YouTube channel. It was your baby, right? Why did entering multiple people into the equation, why was that valuable for you? Um, I think with parking specifically, Early on, uh, we knew that there's a software component and we knew that there's a hardware component and neither of those are my areas of expertise. Um, and they're such so core to what we were doing that uh, it wasn't something I could just say, oh, well, I'll hire someone eventually. It, I really needed the, the co-founder mentality in those areas. Um, and, and Ritwick with his experience in software and Christian uh, who goes to NC State with his experience in hardware um, was kind of a perfect marriage um, and you know, all of us were in a pretty similar boat with some level of entrepreneurial successes, but we're looking for something with a higher ceiling. And it was, it was more the motivation that really justified us specifically coming together is that we wanted to solve this because it's a problem. We had enough background in the different areas, uh, where we felt like we could get something or build something that works. It's just a matter of putting in the time and, and not giving up if it 
seems hard at some point. Yeah. Well, I know, and this is actually something I personally have went through, and I know some others I've talked with as well, is actually finding the right, it, it's kind of like, I'm not just going to pick random people off the street. So were these folks that you went to school, you said one uh, went to NC State. So obviously, they didn't go to UNC, they weren't right there with you. Like, how did you meet them? How did you, you know, figure out, hey, these are the, we, I, I kind of want to go into battle with them in this project. So me and Raywick had known each other for a while. Um, so I, I had that kind of established there. And um, especially within the context of where we were at, we kind of already knew we wanted to work on something together. Um, he had already known Christian, who, and Raywick also goes to UNC. Um, he had already known Christian, who goes to NC State, um, and, and told me about him. Christian actually invented uh, something called the jewel spinner. It was, a, it was a fidget spinner attachment you'd put onto a jewel, and then your jewel would become a fidget spinner capitalized on the fidget spinner trend and the jewel trend um and that that uh you know that got picked up by some some big brands and stuff and like that so I, I had that background of him and then the first time I met him was on a google hangouts call and it was just he was already diving into the sensor prototype he built with raspberry Pis and showing me how it works and I was like I can't do any of that I'm really glad you can and I think you're thinking about it in the right way and thinking about constraints and, and functionality and the job this needs to perform um, so it was definitely a, there was a process of getting to know Christian. Um, and, and I think that's very important is knowing somebody so you know how to work together. Um, but we are similar enough and uh, in many ways and different enough in some ways that that wasn't too hard of a process to you know get along. Yeah. What about um, what about setting up the business? It's structure of it, corporation, shares, all that stuff that just, you know, you can read article on article. How, how did you know what to do or decide what to do? Did you have any mentors that help you, give you guidance? Did you guys kind of just figure it out because you had done some other stuff? You know, each of you had kind of other businesses and stuff? Or Yeah, I, I had a general idea of how to go about that. Um, and that's definitely like the devil's in the details is kind of my area uh, in terms of, um, you know, legal stuff, formation stuff. Uh, uh, financial stuff, budget stuff. Um, but with that, I had, a, I had a general awareness just from the previous experience of, you know, I know why I did an LLC then, and I know most uh, startups do Delaware C Corp. So a little bit of research here and there, I, I knew the right sources to look at, um, like Y Combinator and stuff like that. Um, and I actually used a just an online legal setup, like an automated uh, startup uh, kind of legal services company that uh, was fine for the beginning and was actually being out cheap. It was, um, it was pretty convenient to have that as an option and then eventually move into an actual, you know, law firm that we, that we have. Um, there was a process of, of making sure everything's up to date. And I think we had to change a few things. And um, there was like, like we did like just random little things that we didn't necessarily know about, but it was a good stepping stone. And there are, it's amazing the amount of like self-serving, uh, uh, tools out there for early stage startups. Yeah. And that's, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't, we don't have to go into unless you want, like how you divvied up shares and you do equal, was it all equal? I know other folks that have been on the podcast. It was based on who put what money in to start. Like, did you guys have any of those discussions? Did you have written agreements in place um, in terms of what happens when, or how long people have to stay until things vest? Like I'm assuming you guys went through all that. Yeah, so we we did a super basic, just you know, three way split of of equity at the beginning. Um, I think I wrote a vesting schedule document that um, I picked up that vesting's important just online, and um, that was since replaced because that was a, a terrible thing that I wrote, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, 
but we we had those things in place and they kind of formed over time but we had the we all had the same knowledge that this uh this is only valuable if we build it and it's valuable and and wasting time uh, arguing about things that aren't important and don't contribute to the success or failure of the core value we're trying to provide is a waste of time and and these things will come and we will figure them out but the most important thing is that we're building something that is valuable and worth having these shares split in the first place what stresses you out the most about the business right now fundraising <laughs> i hate so fundraising specifically i actually love the the act of fundraising i like the legal stuff i like the uh kind of the the game theory and negotiation that goes into it um but i hate the distraction from the core business and for later stage companies it's fine because you can kind of fundraise and the business is still taking care of itself you have people in place um but i feel like i've been for the last two months fully focused on fundraising and not focused on on what really matters, which is the, the core of what we're doing, um, which you know, with coronavirus, not many people are parking. It's not the worst thing in the world, but um, in terms of a stress factor, it's like, while we're fundraising, we get all this feedback, we, we edit the pitch deck, we, we understand all these things, but it's, we're not enacting them yet because we're just putting them in the deck saying, we will do this. And it just, it builds up that, okay, now, now we have so much to do. And that's a good thing, of course, but it's the, it's the very thought of focusing too much on, um, you know, what should we do and not enough on doing it. What's the biggest though pain in the neck? Is it actually like getting in front and pitching the folks that are like, you know, like, yeah, they may be interested, maybe not. Is it actually re- they're reaching out and setting up meetings for it? What do you find is the most stressful in that situation? Cities in general, um, they're obviously have a ton of bureaucracy and that's something we were aware of, but specifically they're, they don't, they're not very transparent about their bureaucracy. Okay. Um, and it, it, there's not just much information out there in general, you know, does the city, some will put something to bid even for a free pilot. Some have a, have discretion to use 70 grand of a budget without going to bid. Um, some have six month sales cycles or 18 month sales cycles. Some do sole source contracts, some don't. Um, and just kind of understanding that process and how it is similar across cities and different across cities. That's been the most frustrating thing is because we may, you know, we have this whole concept of how we're going to fit within their system and what we're going to do. And we, we base it off of everything we found, we found to be true online and from talking to other people, then we find out this city does it differently. And then it's like, oh, okay, they have, uh, you know, they have to put everything to bed and they have these insurance provisions that other ones don't. And it's just that the lack of transparency, if I could just know all of that in the beginning, then I could plan for it. Um, but a lot of it is like, sure, they're public documents, but you know, in some cities, you still have to go into like the, the, the city hall and request the documents to, to get that. So I think the government's, they're taking in general, a good step towards information transparency, but there is still a lot to be desired. When, when you say that, do you have to, from a fundraising, is that, are you talking investors or are you talking, you actually have to get the cities to sign on to an agreement before you can do any work there? So that was, that's from the, like the, this is outside of fundraising. Oh, okay. um, this is just in terms of like deploying and, and selling and uh, the, we separate those two concepts of installing and, and selling to cities. Like we provide the hardware for free and we will install even if they're not paying us. Um, and then we'll, we have other things. We'll sell them later, like data services. Um, but even that, like some cities will let you install with an email. Some cities will need a, a full services agreement, even if it's a free installation. Um, so it's navigating that that's fairly interesting. Um, 
I didn't, I guess, I, I guess your question was about what was the, the most frustrating thing with fundraising? Yeah, I'm just curious from a fundraising standpoint, how you're going about that, how you're getting in front of investors, how, how do you, um, how do you choose? Is it, is it, you know, kind of getting in a room and you do 10 straight pitches? Is it, Hey, one, one-on-one type, Hey, let's talk to this person or this person. Do you, are you going the angel route or VCs or what, you know, I'm just kind of curious more on that, what you guys were choosing. So we went largely angels, uh, especially before this seed round. Um, and those were kind of just on individual basis we, we knew of people or got introduced to people. Um, then we, you know, we started talking to bigger angels and angel groups and we talked to a few VCs. We're still a little early for VC institutional capital. Um, it's very much, uh, understanding the space. Like if any investor could be in every conversation we've had with the city, then I don't think it would be a single problem to, to pitch this or, or get investment, but it's the ability and figuring out how to properly communicate what we've learned from having all of that experience to people that know nothing about parking. Um, and, and parking's not a super sexy industry, so it's not like they're like, oh, this is so cool, but we have to show them the cool parts and, and why like, you know, people, parking guys get excited about us and like what we're doing. And like, these are, you know, like 40, 50 year old guys working in government doing, just doing their thing. Like, but they're, they're getting excited about stuff like this and like just that ability and like how to communicate that and, and what role us and this data in general will play uh, is, is difficult to, to people that aren't familiar with the space. Yeah. One other question I had, it just kind of popped up in my head because you guys are putting those cameras, those fancy cameras you just showed me. That was pretty cool. Um, how many do you on average, like, what, 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 give me an idea of what you're putting up now or what you're thinking. Like, how many cameras do you think in a city that you have to um, put up? To Totally depends. So the a few factors, one is on street and off street. If you're looking at a surface lot uh, with, you know, par- or, uh, perpendicular spots packed in like sardines, we can cover 20, 30, 40 with a single camera. Um, but if you're looking at an on-street parallel spot with a, with short poles, we might only get five spots. Um, so there's a range there, uh, but we we separate it based on whether it's a lot or a street. Um, like a, we have a pilot going in, or up and running in Raleigh on Glenwood Ave right now. Um, and that's, I think, six cameras covering 30 spots. Um, we focus mostly on on street cause that's where like off street, because you cover more spots, you can, you can justify having wired cameras a little bit more and spending more. Um, but on street, you need the flexibility. So like to cover Raleigh's 4,500 on street spots, we would need, you know, eight, 900 cameras, um, you know, out in the, out in the field on poles. And then who would do the, you know, so if something gets damaged with those, is that your responsibility to put it up? Is that something with the city you've worked on agreement or? So we work with the, uh, whatever local contractor does their electrical stuff. Um, we're not up in the actual electrical zone. We're below that. So uh, technically we could go just do it like literally myself. Um, but they, we built the cameras to be uh, affordable enough that we can provide them for free and replace them without fixing them. If one goes down or breaks for whatever reason, toss it, throw a new one up there. We, uh, uh, we keep the installers stocked with extra units and it's, they're so simple to install on a wide enough lens that um, they can just put it up themselves remotely without us being there. Um, and that's been very valuable and unrelated, but important caveat. We do not save any, any images or videos. It's cameras are just happen to be cheap and accurate sensors uh, to apply computer vision to. Um, but we have absolutely no fingers in the security or surveillance side of things. 
Um, is there, well, that's probably, this is probably going to be a dumb question, but again, I, I'm always look to learn. So I'm going to ask it. Obviously you have with GPS and satellites and all that stuff, had that been considered and, and, and what's the doubt, what's the, I guess the drawback of trying to do it that way, right. Of like what's available. And I don't know. So we actually, one investor pretty, pretty early on brought uh, some company trying to do like super frequent high resolution satellite images as like, Oh, why do this? That'll be here in a few years. And no, it won't. Uh, they're nowhere. They're nowhere close to the frequency in terms of it, it's nowhere. Nowhere near real time. And uh, the most accurate pictures, uh, a car in a spot would be a a, a pixel or maybe half a pixel. Um, so it's it's definitely not there uh, to use that as a tool. Um, but ultimately, with the trend of smart cities in general, cameras aren't like these are. We're using these for parking, but it's it's more of a platform play in that sense that. Now you have the the sidewalk. Yeah, you, you can detect trash. You got micro mobility options, autonomous vehicles. Like there will be uh, sensing, camera sensing in every city um, to see those types of things. Uh, and satellite imagery is, you know, maybe a decade away from being accurate enough and and frequent enough. But I don't even know if the cost would make sense at that point. Um, but definitely, they're not there yet. Well, it's also too like the, you know, you only are getting the view looking down, right? You don't have yeah. the, it's kind of like, what was that movie? Enemy of the State with, uh, I remember with, the, with Will Smith and Gene Hackman, he's like, don't look, don't look up or whatever. Cause like, you know, they can't see who it is or whatever. So there's um the, the current way of calculating occupancy is based on transaction data as who's paid. Um, and that data in itself from our pilot, 30% of the minutes parked were not paid for. So your, your input data there is already 30% wrong. Um, but the issue is even with that, you're only calculating it on a street by street basis and you can go like red, green, yellow, but no more accurate than that. Um, but past that point, a lot of the use cases for this data within parking need the granularity. Like dynamic pricing is a key example, which is where if a street fills up, you increase the price and you decrease the price uh, at the, the next street over. Um, and that's all done in real time and algorithmically with just small price intervals. And that's where you see unbelievable results in terms of the search time and the turnover and everything. And, you know, people don't consciously do it, but it just has that impact. And that's what those pilots showed. Um, but you can't do effective real-time dynamic pricing with transaction data. You need the granularity and, and uh, frequency of per spot uh, real-time data in order to accurately run those algorithms. That's fascinating stuff. I, I love what you're doing. I think it's a really cool, um, I definitely recommend everyone check out a little bit further on it because it's, it's pretty neat because you don't, as you mentioned, it's not sexy. Parking's not like, but when you actually start peeling back the layers on it, yeah, there's a lot of, because I know the frustration. I try to go to downtown Raleigh, you know, try to go to the museum and then you're figuring, you know, you got to drive around 15 times to figure, you know, it's like, so... I get all it. Just, we all just take it as like, this is the way it is. Yep. But why is that the way it is? And, and we right now we can do better than we're doing. And uh, that's kind of the whole angle that we realize like, wow, this is so far behind that society. Like it's not being innovated because we've just accepted it at this point. Like the, a great example is the reason that you have to estimate the n- amount of time uh, that you're going to be parked for. And it goes in those blocks is from coin meters because a quarter had to represent a certain amount of me- minutes that when you put in a coin meter, 
But when we switched over to digital with kiosks and uh, even the uh, parking apps, which are essentially just kiosks, but on your phone, we still do that where you buy a block of time and you extend it. But, but why? You know, we're not putting coins in a meter anymore and we're doing it because that's just the way things are. Um, but they shouldn't be. You should just park somewhere and then you're paid for the exact or you charge for the exact amount of time you spent there. Um, another thing that's possible with this data because you can track stays and that's kind of the within parking and within mobility as a whole we view it as like we're we're just building a layer of data that has incremental improvement in a bunch of markets or use cases and then radical improvement in a smaller batch of use cases and it's a uh, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about which ones to focus on um, and, and when to focus on each one with with IOT and data in general uh, there's usually multiple use cases and streams, but of course, you know, you got to consider all the options and, and the implications each one brings in order to determine what you should focus on at any given time. Well, so let me ask you this, uh, one or two more questions here. It, one around habits. I'm really big on habits, forming habits, making sure they're useful for you and to improve the efficiency and effectiveness really of your day. What are some habits that you've learned recently, maybe that you've put actually into play that have become habits um, that have been very helpful for you to succeed in the business? This is probably more meta of an answer. Um, but with the business, the whole focus this whole time is like input data matters. It's not all that matters. You still need to do something with it, but you need the good input data. And I've extended that to my personal life and I track things I do like uh, how, how long I worked out for, or uh, how many drinks of wine I had, or just random, random little things about my life. And I, I track those and getting into tracking those, it was even if I'm not doing anything or making any changes, it's the awareness that's, that's so important in terms of like, if I do want to change something, what is the goal? Can I measure that? Can I track that? Um, and that's extended to the company as well in the sense that we, you know, if our goal is uh, to, to deploy 500 cameras in, in, in some given city, we need to be tracking ourselves along the way, knowing exactly what we need to do along the way, what those objectives look like, you know, uh, what frequency of refresh rate on the cameras do we need, or what, uh, what batch of, or how big of a batch do we need to build in order to hit the cost targets. And I think input data in general has become a huge factor of kind of my mental model in general, in terms of obviously data decision, database decisions are important and the best, but it comes down to how good the input data is. And, um, you know, I guess you could call them KPIs as an alternative, but I've really gotten into understanding the power of what an input data does to the outcome. Mm. So you're just trying to, I mean, more get in, I, I guess if, I, if I'm in layman's terms, right, trying to get really deep into it instead of surface level, you're actually trying to figure out where, if, if you kind of go in the back corner, right, in the dark alley, what's there that I'm not thinking about, because that ultimately could save you four or five steps down the road, or, you know, can completely, again, maybe cost you thousands or millions of dollars potentially if you do it wrong right yeah yeah like i like we we sure we think that the city will wants this for analytics and wayfinding and enforcement and all that um and that's a you know because if i was in that position i would think that but it's in, incredibly important to understand why they would want that go, go that level back and understand the incentive structures and, and how that varies from place to place and then use that as a basis to decisions um, not knowing just what they want, but why they want it and kind of the, the more 
uh, explanatory the data gets, then you can make much better decisions. Yeah. Because like what? a city doesn't want to buy cameras, they want uh, a job to be performed. They want a increased turnover, more sales tax revenue, or a higher uh, citizen satisfaction. And understanding those motivations allows us to frame our, our uh, proposal or solution as this is what we use to do this for you. Because uh, ultimately, you know, people are acting in their own interest, whether it's their job's responsibility or their own personal interest. Um, and, you know, you, you need to fit within their incentive structure the, as much as you need to as much as you need to sell into them. Yeah. Oh, I like, I like that word used as kind of their motivation. Like what are their motivators? And that's why people don't buy a product. They buy what the product does for them, right? What it ultimately solves. And that's why there, there's a million competitors in a lot of these areas. Cause like a lot of people solve similar things. It's like, what does it solve actually? Cause that's what I want to buy. I want to buy the solve, right? Yeah. Someone always put it, you know, I've been in sales for a lot of years. I remember a manager put it and I was like kind of the simplest form. He's like, if you got a hole in your backyard, I got a pile of dirt, right? You need the hole filled, right? That's that's the issue. Like you need the hole filled. I happen to have a pile of dirt. Yes, the dirt can go in there. There's other things that can fill it as well. But I think that's where ultimately is getting to that, you know, end goal of what they're actually trying to accomplish. Um, because generally it is deeper than just, oh yeah, we want to look at traffic or whatever. No, it comes back to revenues. It comes back to, it could be a variety of things, right? As you're talking incentive base. So I, I like that you are pulling deeper. And I think for you guys being a data you know, company, right, is kind of what your your, your focus is, right? That's going to help you. You know, you, you have 100%. to obviously have that. We realized early on, like, we saw other companies and their pricing models, and it was just this weird question. Like, we didn't want to deal with city sales cycles and procurement, but we realized, like, what, why are they selling hardware to the city in the first place? What benefit does the city get out of owning that piece of hardware? You know, they just want it for the data. So why don't we just skip that step, give them the data, and, and we'll handle the hardware, um, and get them closer to the actual value they're deriving. And that, um, that, that's certainly a, a component of our differentiation is that the hardware is purely a tool. We only built it ourselves because it didn't exist. We will not build it ourselves the second we can get a better one on the market. Um, and eventually we might not even be doing the hardware. We, we might be on the data side solely, um, but it's, it's a tool and we aren't trying to sell them you know, a camera that they don't, they just want the data and then the integrations and the outcomes and, and bringing them closer to that is important. Absolutely. All right. So let me ask you this. I, I want you to jump in the way back machine here about five or six years. Um, what would you tell your 17, 18 year old self, you know, something that, and, and by the way, you only have a post-it note. This is where they get spun. You only have a post-it note size paper that you could write it on. What would you tell them to help them further along, maybe get, get a little bit further on their journey, if you can go back and do that? Email people. The amount of valuable uh, connections, insight, relationships that I've gained from just realizing there's no risk to a cold email is, and, and you'll send way more than you'll get responses to. Um, and you won't, you won't remember the ones you don't get responses to. But when you get a response to somebody, you know, you, you think like, like Mark Cuban is, is famous for always responding to all the emails that he gets. Um, and and um, that there's no downside to emailing anybody you could get value from. And there, it's important that you, you aren't sending a, a super long email. It's important if you want something, be specific and put it up front. And it's, it's, there's plenty of strategies along there in terms of how to properly quote email, but um, 
the I did not, especially in my YouTube days, I, I was never really a big cold emailer. I would I would take sponsorships as they came to me. Um, but there is so much can get done with just emailing. And it's it's an old tech tool now, but it's still so powerful that you can find almost any email address with some tools online uh, and LinkedIn and um, the, uh, the, you know, we're, we live in a world where everybody's connected by the internet, take advantage of that, send an email to Elon Musk and see if he responds or, you know, like there, nobody's out of reach and, you know, they might not respond, but they might read it. Um, and if they do respond, they might not help now, but they might help you later with something. And there's a lot of upside and, and really no downside. That is sound advice. Cause that's something that's so simple, but I think a lot of, like, even I think about it, like in terms of podcast guests, there's a lot of people I've been wanting to reach out to and I just haven't yet. And it's kind of one of those things like, well, there's really no excuse because I can probably just email them. And uh, again, what's the worst that happens? So that's a good reinforcement. I need to hear that too. So <laughs> cool, man. This was awesome. What, uh, where can everyone find you online? Where's the best place to connect? Uh, probably go uh, Twitter. Um, I, I am fairly active on there. I actually am not certain what my handle is. I think it's, MS Tech YT still, I want to say, let me just load it up real quick. Um, I think I, I think it is. Yeah, it's still MS Tech YT, which is YouTube, which is funny because uh, I don't do that anymore. But I, uh, I don't know. I think I still got like had that linked in a bunch of YouTube videos or something and didn't want to like mess up the handle linkage and stuff. Um, so MS Tech YT on Twitter um, or I think underscore Maddie underscore Schaefer on Instagram. Um, but yeah, come check it out. That's cool. We never got into why you changed the Maddie for Matt. I should probably ask uh, that. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, it was really, you know, I grew up being Maddie. Um, and going into college, I think I was like, all right, now's my real opportunity to change. Like once I was, you know, in high school, the, I knew everyone I was going to know. So changing would be really hard. Went into college and I was like, all right, it's my time. I'm going to be more professional. I'm going to be Matt. I introduced myself as Matt. And I realized very quickly, I don't respond to Matt. If people say like, yo, Matt, I just wouldn't respond. Um, so then I, I went back to, to Maddie. And for a while, I used it just as a differentiator of who knows me well and who doesn't. And if I heard Matt, I know it, I wouldn't know that person very well. But um, I've come to embrace the value of a, of a unique first name. And that most people only know one or two maximum other dudes named Maddie. Um, and I think that's valuable. It's a, it's a memorable thing. That's cool. Cool. Appreciate you sharing that story. Awesome, man. Uh, Maddie, appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you all for joining in on another episode. Or if this is your first one, I appreciate you being here and certainly grateful for the listen. Uh, come back and check another guest out. We got some great ones coming up as well. And if you guys don't mind, I'd love a review on Apple. If you have 15 to 20 seconds, you might even be listening to this on Apple podcast. So you can just scroll down to the bottom and go ahead and leave a rating and a review. It only gets us out to more people. And, you know, I'm a big believer that all the different experiences that we have in our own journeys, if we share those together, if we get those out, it might encourage other people to take that leap of faith, step outside their comfort zone and ultimately achieve fulfillment in their life. So I look forward to connecting with you guys online as well. Uh, my website, brianondraco.com. Hit me up on a note there or Instagram and Twitter at brianondraco. Besides, I'm out on LinkedIn as well if you just search my name. So hope to connect with you guys real soon. I hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.